just about 10 weeks ago. What's today? Wednesday. 10 weeks ago, right now, I was laying on a... Uh, laying on a hospital gurney, getting ready to have my knee replaced, which uh, my doctor managed to do. Got the right knee corrected. Um, got, the, got, a, got a new knee. And uh, I have been down the road of orthopedic surgery uh, a few times before that, including a couple of partial knees. So I know the drill after surgery. After surgery, very shortly, they're getting you out of bed to walk. You know, you, your, your leg's about this big around because it's swollen up from surgery, and they want you to walk. And the next day, the next day, a, a very nice, smiling man comes in and says, let's see how far you can bend your knee. And he takes it like two sides of a wishbone. Oh, you can do more. You can do more. Yeah, just give me some drugs, and I'm good to go, you know. <laughs> An orthopedic surgery corrects a problem, but it is not the total solution to getting to a point of useful life. It corrects a problem, but now you've got weeks and, in my opinion, months and almost a year of work to do to get everything strengthened and stretched in, in a way that makes that joint completely useful again. Monday night and last night, we talked about what God does in salvation. We have a wonderful, precious salvation that according to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, is able to impact our whole life. We're able to take on the divine nature. We're, we're able to escape to the corruption that is in the world through lust. But as we're going to start learning tonight, it requires effort. It requires work. And today and tomorrow and possibly Friday, depending on how our time goes, I want to look at the area of, main, the, area of the Christian life that I'm going to call maintaining peaceful relationships. Everybody in this room is a family, uh, of, is here with a family of, of, of one sort or another. We all exist in families. Part of my family is here. You know, I, we're empty nesters now, so my primary relationship is with my wife and my children are secondary. Many of you are still living together, parents and children, and so that's the primary circle. But you also have relationships at work and at school and in church, in a club that you might be in or a team that you might be on. And, and the, the question that I want to ask and then answer from God's word is, how do you maintain joyful, peaceful relationships? And I want you to be thinking of all of those circles of your life. I'm going to make some primary applications to marriage and to parent and child, but I also want you to be thinking of all of those ranges of your life. And the first and I think most exciting truth is here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, or I beg you, I'm, I'm down on my knees saying, please, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Let me just stop there for a minute. You remember last night when we talked about the nature of salvation, and we said that when we accept Christ, Christ comes into us. We're infused with the life of Christ. That's the calling with which we were called. 
You didn't get saved just so you would go to heaven and not to hell. And between now and that day, you just kind of muddle through your life. You were saved so that the life of Christ could be manifest in you now, and you could go to heaven and worship God for eternity. I beseech you to walk, live your life according to the calling with which you were called with all. Here's how you do it. Lowliness or humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And here's a key phrase for me. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I realize that I'm going to talk primarily about relationships among Christian people. But I also know that Romans 12, 18 says that we should endeavor to live at peace with all people. And so I'm thinking primarily of your family, primarily of your church and other Christian relationships you have, but the opportunity does go beyond that. Look at verse 3, though, and just answer this question. What does God say is true according to that verse? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What does that verse assume is true? Tell me. Speak up. That there is unity. It assumes that the Holy Spirit is already creating unity. Among you and every other Christian, the Holy Spirit is in the process and and in the, the habit of producing unity. Does that verse say you are supposed to make unity? No, what are you supposed to do? Keep. You're supposed to keep. What does that mean you what does that mean your possibilities are? You can either ruin the unity that the Holy Spirit has created, or you can maintain it. You can keep it. Now, how would you suppose that you ruin the unity of the Holy Spirit? What? Sin. Sin. That's right. Sin destroys unity. Righteousness builds unity. Again, when I use the word build, I'm saying maintaining. It's already there. The Holy Spirit is doing it. We have to work with it. Now, I want you to turn your thinking from that kind of an idea to the common worldly wisdom. What does the world say is normal about fighting in the marriage and family? Right, but the world says you should pursue being the winner. And what else does the world say, the unsaved world around us, about marriage and the family and getting along with one another? What's normal to them? It's normal that you don't get along. It's normal to fight. Have you ever heard this? If you aren't fighting, one of you is unnecessary. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, some people talk. They will share that with people getting married. Well, if you don't fight once in a while, then one of you is unnecessary. I've heard Christian people say that. 
I honestly believe that us Christians have given in, we've, we've given up because it is challenging to maintain peace in the family. And we've said, well, I guess it is normal to fight and argue and not get along. And I guess we'll just have to kind of, you know, muddle along through best we can. And when our kids turn 18, we'll kick them out of the house and then everything will be great. A lot of people that are out there in the world talk that way. But Christians, Christian, we have the opportunity to have peace because God creates it and it's our job to maintain it. Now, what are the challenges? Hand me that cloth, please. (laughs) What are the challenges? I've put four D words there and of all the stuff in this curriculum that I've written, I would really like to encourage you to memorize these four D words. And the first one is differences. These are these four words, these four things are the challenges, the challenges to unity. Decisions, and then the one that you probably don't use too much, depravities. Now, Differences. Um, my friends Jim and Melanie, tell me, tell me one way that you're different from him. Let me count the ways. <laughs> well, then you tell me one way. Uh, she's a morning person and I am not. She's a morning person, you're not. Okay, how, how many of you are morning people? How many of you are not? Okay, there you go. Now... Is that an issue of sin and righteousness? No. But it's a difference. Does that ever bug you, Melanie? <laughs> yeah, see that? That's, see, that, that's a challenge for them. That's a challenge for them. Um, somebody else, tell me a difference between you and your... Uh, somebody, Tom. Money. Money. Spend it or save it. Spend it or save it. I'm, I'm asking the difference between you two. You're a spender. <laughs> there you go. All of those, those are all normal differences. And you can't say men are always this way and women are always that way. We know there are some basic perspectives between men and women, but honestly, we don't know exactly what they are because God didn't see fit to tell us. But we have differences. Some of those differences will be Male, female, some of those will be person to person. And parents and children have differences. Some parents are morning persons and some children aren't. (laughs) And then siblings between themselves have differences. Now, it's important to realize this will never go away. I'm not saying people can't change. I'm saying there will always be some differences. And we need, to, we need to just get our mindset. We are all unique individuals. When you go to church and sit with a committee to plan something, you should go in expecting, here's four or five people all with a unique perspective on life. When I sit with my elders, I know we all have a little different perspective. And at, if you work at it long enough, you can come to say, that's really good. 
And of course, we could, we could go and bring in the differences of spiritual gifting when it comes to the church, especially, and, and how wonderful that is that it's not all mine, it's us. Differences. Now, desires. A desire. Um, Lyle, would you turn me down just a little bit, please? Desires. Um, who, who is really young, young and newly married here? Anybody? Uh, uh, What are you pointing to? Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Um, When you... Your husband's not here, right? Perfect. You can talk about him then. Okay. (laughs) So as you guys came into marriage, did you have any desires that you recognized where you kind of thought, I want to do this in life someday? And he thought, I want to do that. Can you think of something like that? And did he want a huge family? He's considering it now. <laughs> there you go, right there. Desires, family, yeah. Family number, sure. Um, okay, now, is, is her desire wicked? No. Is his desire wicked? No, it's not. Okay, but there's desires we have to deal with. Um, you know, some people want to do this. Some people want to do that. Some people don't want to do nothing at all. Okay, desires. And then there's decisions to make. Somebody tell me the last big decision you made as a family or as a couple or maybe you're an individual making a big decision. Tell me the last big decision you made that you're comfortable sharing. Buying a house. house. Okay, that's a big one. Buying a house. Somebody tell me another one. Oh, that's big. Yeah, that's really big. Adopting a child. Okay, now, hear me all the way through here. There's a sense in which there's not a right and wrong to this. There needs to be a leading of the Lord. I get that. But if you are saying, uh, I want to buy this house for $100,000, and the person says, I want to buy that house for $100,000, it's not right or wrong. There needs to be a following of the Lord's leading somehow, finding that together, and we'll talk about that as we go through. But there are decisions to make. You're going to buy a car. You're going to, you know, you, where's the house going to be located because of schools or church or things like that? Decisions to make. Now, we get over here to depravity. Depravity is, a, is the theological term, and of course, if you've got three Ds, you've got to have the fourth D. <laughs> Um, and, I'm, and I'm thankful to Norm Johnson for suggesting the word depravity because mine was not as good. But, uh, <laughs> but a depravity, uh, I'm using that as a, a reference to a sin. Okay? There are times when we, do, when, when we sin against one another. We may do it accidentally. We may do it on purpose, but that happens. And what I... One of the lessons I want you to get right off the bat is this. These are not issues of sin and righteousness. This is. But all four of these things you have to grapple with in every relationship you're involved with. And and if you want to think of it this way, in your closest relationship, you have to pay the most attention and work the hardest at it. And as you would draw the rings out, you might have somebody you see once on a blue moon and, and, and maybe it's a little different out there. But these are the things you will have to deal with and they will never go away. 
People can change. Desires can meld together. When I, when I told you the other night, when I, or yesterday, when I was dating my wife, I said, I'm going to be a pastor. Now, I know she has had to blend her desires into that because we don't get to choose where we're going to live and, and things like that and what we're going to get paid. I had a financial planner tell me one time, if you're not making enough money at that church, you should go find one that will pay you more. Oh, yeah, that's how I choose churches. That's, that's the top thing on my mind right there. But she has to, you know, there's a, there's a lot of bending that's necessary on her part, um, and, and, and that's a challenging thing. In other families, it's different. These things are different. Some things will change over the years and grow and progress, and, and, and lives will blend together, and many of these things will get easier But these things will always be present. And so what you have to say is, how am I going to deal with these things? And so number three on your notes is this, the environment of a peaceful relationship. If God says the Spirit creates unity and it's my job to keep it, and if I'm going to have differences, desires, decisions, and depravities to deal with, what is the environment in which I can maintain peace Um, while living through these things. The first one is be a disciple. And the prime concept, when I put this word disciple here and separate it from some of the other concepts, the prime concept is what is your goal in life? What is your goal in life? Now what does God say is supposed to be our goal in life? To glorify Him. him. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to glorify Him. Now what other goals might people have when they are approaching marriage? Say, I'm, I'm, I'm engaged to get married, and my reason is security, companionship, trying to make yourself happy. Now, those things are not wicked in themselves. Those things are, are things that God wants to provide for us. But what has to be our anchor, what has to be the umbrella over everything in our life is, am I trying to honor God? I can remember being engaged. We got got formally engaged in like uh, March, something like that, and then married in September. We were talking about marriage for four or five months before that. But once we got engaged, I read 10 books. I've tried to find it. What what can I learn about this? And I kept praying, oh, God, if I'm making the wrong decision, please close the door. I mean, I want to get married to her, but I want your will. And and I I was just so concerned about that because I, I could see this was a huge decision I was approaching, a huge change of life. It's hard to hold that up to God and say, okay, God, if you want to take it away, take it away. But if you have entered marriage that way, then when these things come along and you've got this difference, he is continuing to squeeze the toothpaste in the middle and it makes me so angry. Then the starting point is, how does God want me to act? That's different from how can I get my way? Okay? And you laugh and say, oh, nobody gets that upset about toothpaste. You haven't been married very long if that's what you think. 
Because little things can become big things if they aren't taken care of. And if your goal isn't to honor God with your life, you're going to make big things out of little things. And you're going to hang on to them. And you're going to want to win on everything that you're going at. What is your goal in life? Let's tighten it down to where we live a little bit. Husband and wife discussing a child's bad behavior. One of them just got home from work. One of them is cooking dinner. How does your goal in life impact this discussion? Husband just came home from work. Wife is cooking dinner. I'm going I'm to stereotype it. Child's been acting badly. And now somebody wants that disgust. How does your goal in life affect that behavior? How does your goal in life of pleasing God affect that, that thing right there? Many of you are saying, I never thought about that before. I want you to think about that. How does my goal in life of living for God affect everything? Let's move on. Be a disciple. Number two, be a learner. Oh, man. Turn to First Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, I think this is so important and so encouraging what God says is possible here. 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse verse 7. Husbands, likewise dwell with your wife. He's been talking to wives in the first six verses. Dwell with your wives with understanding. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and being heirs together. Dwell with your wife according to understanding. What does that verse say is possible? What? You can understand your wife. Say it isn't so. You can never say, I Now, what does the world say? It says men are from Mars, women are from Venus. And they really don't talk about true understanding that much. And w- there's been this truism passed around that, well, you just can't stand, understand them. No. God says men can learn to understand their wives. Now, I, I, under, I know that no two people completely know each other, whether it's a husband and wife or best friends or whatever. I understand that. But God says it's possible for you to be a student of the people in your lives. I'm, I'm going to broaden this out in a minute, but I just I'm, I want to start right here. It's possible for you to study and to learn and to say, okay, I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to see how she responds when I act this way and, and what she says when I say, not so I can learn to push her buttons, just the opposite, so I can learn not to. I can learn how to act. Now, have you ever heard this? God tells men multiple times in the scripture to love their wives, but he doesn't tell women because they naturally love their husbands. Have you ever heard that? Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Yeah. I, I agree with the concept that women are, seem to be more naturally relational. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, certainly more naturally nurturing uh, in general. 
But look what Titus 2, verse 3 and 4 says. The older women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. They are to teach the young women to love their husbands. Now, what does that imply? That a brand new wife does not know everything she needs to know about how to love her husband. And so I, I think it's just so, so critically important that we be learners. Now, turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, all of you kids that have been in church, you know that terrible verse that's there. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But fathers, do not, verse 4, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Does that imply that you need to be a student of your children? How are you going to not provoke them to wrath if you aren't paying attention to who they are and how they are unique? Um, let's turn to... Uh, let's see here. Well, we've, we, we started with Ephesians 4. I'm not going to go to any more passages. But I just want to summarize this principle and say no, none of us can assume that we understand exactly how to communicate with other people, how to interact with other people without being a learner, without trying to understand them. The next, the next uh, instruction here is to be a lover. Be a disciple, be a learner, and then be a lover. And uh, you kids are going, ooh, ick, be a lover. Um, here's the definition of being a lover. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. A disciple is willing to sacrifice themselves for others because Christ asks us to do so. A disciple is willing to lay down their life. Remember, we started with being a disciple. Have you decided to live your life for Christ? Say, yes, I want to live my life for Christ. Then are you trying to learn about the people in your life? You need to be. And then are you willing to lay down your life for them? Now, what that means is making personal sacrifices. And, and, and if you were to study the whole of the New Testament on, on this topic, I think you'd understand that God wants us to try to perceive the difference between needs and wants and to care for people. Um, you know, in the family, the obvious, uh, the obvious uh, early illustration is parents for children, perhaps especially a mother for a child. Uh, a baby is new, and the baby is needy about every five minutes. And think of the silly illustration where you push the child over there and say, hey, bud, man up and take care of yourself. Well, of course that's not going to happen. And most mothers who have been raised in a decent way will lay down their life and take care of their child, and the fathers will learn to do so. <laughs> Maybe by the time they get to be a grandfather, who knows, you know? Be a lover. 
Have you ever heard this? In every marriage, there's a taker and a giver. Have you ever heard? I don't know if maybe you haven't. I hope you haven't. That's one of the normal, that's one of the normals of the world. There's a taker and a giver. And as long as you don't have two takers, you're okay. That is not God's definition of marriage. Be a lover. Lay down your life. Next one, be a listener. Turn with me to James chapter 1. We're talking about the environment. What is the environment in which you can work through these things? Look at James chapter 1, verse 19. And we'll come back to this a couple more times before we're done uh, this week. James 1, 19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I should have memorized those verses early in marriage and definitely early in child raising. Because if I had, I wouldn't have had to apologize so much for being, for being slow to hear, uh, quick to speak, and quick to wrath. Um, be a listener Be swift to hear. What does this say about maintaining peace? It means we've got to have our ears and our heart wide open as we consider these issues. Ears and eyes wide open. The problem with people like me is we come in knowing already what's going on rather than coming in going, let's find out what's going on. And then let's do what needs to be done. Be a listener. It's not hard to become defensive and self-centered when something is hurtful. It's a short hop to a belief that you know exactly what somebody was thinking, what they were meaning, what they were trying to accomplish. And instead of entering with a mind made up, the godly person has to enter with ears wide open. Opinions have to be formed after information is shared be a listener next one be a confronter turn with me to matthew 18 i believe this is one of the most overlooked passages in the in the new testament for interpersonal relationships matthew 18 we typically call this passage the church discipline passage and it is, but it's, what it's about is not about the church kicking people out of the church. It's about the church helping people get along. Matthew 18, uh, verse 15. If your brother, that's your brother in Christ, sins against you, go and tell him your, his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to hear the church, then let him be like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, let me describe to you how this needs to, what needs to happen here in marriage. Because sometimes in marriage, there is a sin There is a depravity going on. There is something wrong going on. 
And the spouse says, dear, you need to work on this. This needs to change. This is unacceptable. And the sinful party blows them off. What's the next thing you should do according to this passage? What's the next thing you should do? What? Bring a couple of witnesses. What do you think is going to happen if you bring somebody in to confront your spouse? Do you think that's going to go well? Is that something you, you think, oh boy, I'm going to bring somebody in to help me confront my spouse? If you do, you've got another sin issue going on. Okay. Here's what I want you to understand. This is God's method God's method of pressing people to change. We have human tools of manipulation. I was counseling a uh, husband and wife many years ago who were having uh, some pretty diff- extreme difficulties. And, I, and they attended our church, and I, I heard through the grapevine that she had decided to leave him. And their difficulties were not such that a divorce would have been biblical or honored by God in any way. And, and I heard that she was going to leave him. I thought, what in the world? So I, I got a hold of her and I said, what's going on? She said, oh, I'm not going to leave him. I just told him that to get him to change. Is that godly? Why is that not godly? Number one, it's a lie. Number two, it's taking things into your own hand out of God's hand. God says, this is the method right here. I've talked to people who, who, I talked to somebody recently, oh, this problem and this problem. I said, let's go. You and me, buddy, we'll go and talk to your spouse. Oh, 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 that'll make them angry. And then they say the words they shouldn't say. I guess there's nothing we can do. Oh, yeah. There's absolutely something you can do. Let's do it. Let's do it because God says it makes people change. And I'm here to tell you it does. Now, um, there are people here from my church, and they know some of the situations we have worked on together. Because when they don't listen to the second witness in our church, we ramp it up a notch to where there are more people involved who know That way, this individual can't go here, go there, and get sympathy, this and that. The people in their circle know, hey, we're all working together because this brother, this sister is not living right. That is God's method of change. That is God's method of change. And only one time in 13 years have we told it to the church as a whole. And it's not fun, and it's not easy, but it's what God says we're supposed to do. If you are a husband and wife, it is, and, and, and let me speak particularly to wives and to young women who will be wives. It is not godly to submit to your husband when he is acting in sin, outright sin. Okay, God doesn't tell you to submit to sin, He tells you to follow your husband, but if your husband is sinning, now you need to make sure it's really a sin and not just he's squeezing a toothpaste tube in the wrong place. You need to make sure it's a sin, and if it's a sin, you need to go to that spiritually mature person in your life and say, brother so-and-so, 
I need help with my husband, and here's what's going on. Okay? I believe some marriages will be saved if you will do that early and not wait till it's late. Be a lover, be a listener, be a confronter. And by the way, there's two scenarios that Christ draws for confrontation. One is in Matthew 18, the other is in Matthew 5. And those of you that know the Bible, what's the, what's the episode of confrontation there? In Matthew 18, you have been wrong. Somebody has sinned against you. In Matthew 5, what does it say? It says, if you find out you've sinned against somebody else, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to sort of self-confront. You're supposed to go and say, I did wrong. And what that means is, Christian... It is your job to initiate the reconciliation of relationships, whether you were wronged or whether you wronged someone else. If you are confronted, you need to become a confessor. Um, Turn with me to 2 Samuel. I I think this, this is worth our while to go there and just look at the Scripture. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is, uh, boy, this is a model of confrontation for, especially for those of us in spiritual leadership um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is after David sinned greatly with Bathsheba, Uriah, and all of that terrible episode. He is super guilty before the Lord. Then the Lord sent Nathan, Nathan the prophet, to David, and he came to him and said to him, he told him a story. There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little female lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him, with his children. It ate of his own food. It drank of his own cup. Ew. And it lay in his bosom. And In other words, he he slept with it. It was like a daughter to him. He loved that little lamb. And a traveler came to a rich man, to the, to the rich man who lived next door. The rich man refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and he cooked it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused. David is the king. He can do something about this. His anger was greatly aroused against the man, and he said, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Then David said to, then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord of Israel, I anointed you over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives. Verse 12, For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel. 
So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, use your sacred imagination. What else, what instead of could David have said? How else might he have responded to the confrontation? It's none of your business. That's right. What else? Not my fault. It's not my fault. Bathsheba was out there displaying her beauty. Uriah was in battle. Hey, not my fault. I've been reading a book about some Nazi war criminals, and that's what they said, too. Not my fault. Yeah. There's another one. What difference does it make now? What difference does it make now? Ooh, wow, that's a tough one. How about this? I'm the king. I can do what I want. But he didn't do that. And, and in fact, his response to this confrontation is, shows what we hear God say about David, which is what? David was a man after my own heart. And so, yes, David sinned greatly, and God did bring calamity to him as a chastisement for this. But here, David, he hears the confrontation, and he says, I have sinned. That's what it means to confess. Confession is not when you say, well, but, well, you don't understand. Confession is when you honestly listen and somebody tells you your sin and you say, you're right, I did the wrong thing. Now, let me share some thoughts. What are the thoughts and desires that get in the way of confessing our wrongdoing? And I think I put these scriptures in there. Uh, I hope I did. I'm never wrong. I always see things the right way. I didn't mean to hurt you. I don't like to cry. I want to avoid hard things. Um, we don't have time to go over all these. There's all kinds of reasons why we don't want to hear it. No, 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 don't, no, no I don't want to hear it. I've known people, they, just, they do not want, I won't do it again, I won't do it again. Don't, no, no, no. But they do not want to say, I did wrong. Listen, believer, you are going to have to confess your sin over and over throughout your life. Just get set right now. You know that you're not perfect. And you know that you're going to make mistakes in your marriage, with your children, at your church, at your workplace, wherever you are, you're going to make mistakes. And the godly Christian takes an honest inventory and looks inside and says, I did wrong. Turn with me to Psalm 51 and look at the reason why you ought to confess. The reason why you ought to confess. These are the words of David. And this is his, you know, he confessed to Nathan, but here is him confessing to God. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your mercies. Blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly. Cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. And he goes on to confess his sin. But if we drop down to verse 13... He goes through all of this extensive confession. Then, then I will be able to teach transgressors your way. You know what the most important reason is for you to confess your sin? is to get your spiritual life restored so you can continue to act as God wants you to act. 
you will not be able to do God's God's work in your relationships if you refuse to confess your sin. You see, it's one thing to refuse another person. But if you truly have done something wrong and you are refusing to acknowledge that, you're also refusing to acknowledge it to God. And do you remember yesterday we talked about what happens when somebody lives in sin? Your fellowship with God God is broken. Your ability to make decisions is is, uh, turned sinful. And and your whole manner of life becomes um, dangerous, spiritually speaking. 1 John 1, 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of his Son forgives us. Let's go to one more, because this goes together. This goes together. Be a forgiver. Be a forgiver. Be a confronter when there needs to be be confrontation. Confrontation is about this stuff. We're going to talk about working through these things in a while, but when there actually is sin, there has to be confrontation um, or covering. We'll talk about that in the future here too. So there's a confrontation, and then there's a confession, and then there needs to be a forgiveness. I think I put a little diagram in your notes. Confrontation goes this way. Confession goes this way. Forgiveness goes this way. What does it mean to forgive? Give me a short definition of forgiveness. Short definition of forgiveness. What's that? You don't count their sin against them. I would just change one word, to stop holding it against them. Psalm 103, verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed his transgressions from us. Here's the big question. Does God forget your sin? Can God forget your sin? No, but he can move it away from you so far. And and when he looks at you, what is the filter that he looks at you through? The blood of Christ. And he sees you pure. If that was not true, you would not be ready to go to heaven at any moment. While we walk in this life, we have to work to remove those sins of our experience and to be more like Christ But he has removed our sins, and that is the model for us, to take them away and stop holding them against. We won't turn to Matthew 18, but that's the passage where Peter says, How many times shall I forgive? Seven times? Peter Peter thought he was really, wow, I'm going to go seven times. I'd like you just to think about Peter's human standard. Even just start there and say, have you forgiven a person seven times of a significant wrong? I mean, I'm not sure we even go up to seven. And Jesus said, no, not seven times. 
he said 70 times 7. And I'm pretty sure he was not trying to say, keep track of it till you get to 490 and then cut it off. I'm pretty sure he was trying to... I'm pretty sure in that day, I know they didn't have smartphones, and I don't think they kept a piece of paper in their pocket all the time. So I'm pretty sure they would not have been able to count up. But you know what comes right after the 70 times 7? The parable comes where Jesus said, let me tell you about a guy who owed his boss a fortune. And the boss was collecting and, and, and he said, oh, I can't pay, I can't pay. And the boss said, I forgive it. He forgave this fortune of debt. And what did that servant do? He went right out and said, hey, you owe me a little bit of money. I'm going to throw you in jail until you pay. And when his master heard it, he was furious with him. That is a model of God forgiving us and us How are we going to forgive others? Is it easy to forgive? Sometimes. Sometimes it's wicked hard. It just stretches you right to the edge. What happens when you forgive somebody of a big wrong? What happens in the relationship? Well, on a positive note, reconciliation can happen, but what what do you have to give up? What do you have to give up if you're going to forgive somebody of a big wrong? Pride? I think the key is power. If you've wronged me, I'm in the power position in this relationship. You wronged me. You wronged me. Yeah, I know. You wronged me. I know. I want to do this, okay, because I owe you, I've wronged you. And the whole relationship goes upside down from what it's supposed to be because this person likes having the control. You know what? If your loved one confessed, as far as the east is from the west, if you won't do that, you're not a disciple. What would you think if you went to God and said, Oh, God, you know that sin that I do a lot? I did it again. And I'm sorry, and it's wrong, and by your help, I'm going to stop. And if he looked down and said, That's 491. You say, Wait a minute. You can't do that. You see, God treats you with tremendous grace and mercy. And he says, he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. That's what it means to lay down your life. You've been wronged, you let go. You've been wronged at church. You know what the modern solution to that is when you're wronged at church, right? You you hear about the guy who was shipwrecked on an island and they found him? And when they came, there was three little buildings. He says, that one's my house. And that one's my church. And they said, what's that one? That's the church I used to go to. (laughs) I was hurt. You might have been. You might have been wronged at your church. 
it's possible you did some wronging too. And it's possible you don't want to confess as well as forgive. Hey, friends, the possibility, the possibility exists for peaceful, joyful relationships. That's the target. The target is not to get by. The target is not to hang in there. The target is to grow through and know God's joint peace in our lives. Anybody want to ask a question? I'm just looking at the clock and debating, but I'm, I'm done sharing, but you want to ask a question? You want to, you want to challenge? You want to... Yes? That's right. He didn't respond well to that forgiveness, but I'm free of that That's right. That's right. Well, and that power that, you know, that, that power is what God calls bitterness. When we have a wrong, when we have suffered a wrong, we need to make it right. Because when we don't, it creates difficulty in us. Praise the Lord for that. That's a great example, and that's definitely the the kind of things that, that are huge and hard to deal with but need to be dealt with so we can go on and experience the joy and peace of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for making it possible that we can live in your joy and peace. Help us to do our part today to make that happen. I pray in Christ's name, amen.